And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither decide after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist, and faithfulness the girdle of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mouth. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. And it shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse that standeth for an ensign of the peoples, unto him shall the nations seek, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people that shall remain from Assyria and from Egypt and from Patros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamat and from the islands of the sea. He will set up an ensign for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and they that vex Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. And they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines on the west. Together shall they despoil the children of the east. They shall put forth their hand upon Edom and Moab. The children of Ammon shall obey them. Jehovah will utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his scorching wind will he wave his hand over the river, and will smite it into seven streams, and cause men to march over dry shot. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, and shall remain from Assyria, like as there was for Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. In that day you shall say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah, though thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Jehovah, even Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, Give thanks unto Jehovah, call upon his name, declare his doings among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto Jehovah, for he hath done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout, 
thou inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. And so reads Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 6. This is one of the premier, you might say, prophetic pieces in all of ancient literature. It comes to us, obviously, from the book of Isaiah. It is considered to be what we would call, what we would characterize, what we would label messianic, messianic. It describes seemingly a singular eschatological figure known to both Jews and Christians as the Messiah. But the title, the name, the designation Messiah occurs nowhere from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 6. It is considered to be a description, if you will, of the ideal Davidic Messiah, or the Davidic ruler, but the name David doesn't appear anywhere in this text. Now, we're going to talk about this text. We're going to look at this text very closely today, and we're going to bring up some things that will take us into a discussion and ultimately a series on what are considered to be messianic passages in the Hebrew Bible. So Shabbat Shalom, Chag Hasukot Sameach, and today, the subject that we are talking about is, as Isaiah 11 calls this figure, I want you to go ahead and have your Bible open. We're going to be talking primarily from Isaiah chapter 11, but you'll be moving throughout the text to look at other passages that are related. But in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, we're introduced to what is called in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, parallelism. So we have a description followed by a description both describing the same person, thing. In this case, it is a figure. The first part of this parallelism calls this figure the rod or shoot from the stump or stock of Jesse. Now, I'm using the ASV translation in this class. It is a time-honored translation. It is very accurate. Uh, it's pretty accurate, let's say. But it does take us to a literal reading of this. We'll get into some specifics where it might not be so precise on the Hebrew, but that comes later. For now, we're talking about the rod or shoot, meaning a piece of growth, a rod or a shoot from the stump or stock of Jesse. The second part of this parallelism calls the same figure a branch from his roots. Now, if you say, wait a minute, how do I interpret this? Whose roots are we talking about? If you overlay these so that in one line you have the first half of the quote and in the second line you have the second half, you can quickly begin to see that this 
is this and that is that. So for instance, the rod shoot in the first half is the branch of the second half. So the in Hebrew, it's a choter. A choter is a netzer. Both of these terms describe this particular figure. We know that this particular figure, the netzer, the branch, the choter, uh, is from, now notice very carefully, we're, you're going to have certain ideas. Some of us come to this text. In fact, I would probably say that almost everyone of faith who comes to this text believes that they already know either who this is or from whom this person descends. But I want you to be very careful. I want us to think about this. I want us to read it very carefully. Look at this text as if you didn't have the answer written in the column of your beautiful study Bible. Just look at the text. And let's think about it. Whoever this is, whoever this branch is, whoever this shoot, this rod is, comes from the stump the trunk of Jesse, which is David's father. In verse 10 of chapter 11, the same uh, rod or shoot from the stump or stock, the same branch from Jesse's roots. Notice Jesse's roots. In verse 10, this same figure is called the root of Jesse. Not the fruit of Jesse, the root of Jesse. Think about this. The spirit of Jehovah, we read in Isaiah 11, will rest, will rest upon this shoot, branch, root from Jesse. This particular figure has the spirit of Jehovah it says, upon, upon them. This person will be a righteous judge. We have texts throughout the Hebrew Bible that talk about judge, righteous judgment, and so forth. This figure, this person, will be a righteous judge. His message, every pronoun in this passage, is masculine. His message will possess the power to slay the wicked. Now, this figure is not described as wielding a sword or a spear or a weapon in that sense. Like Isaiah's vision in chapter 2, there are no weapons because those, the spears and the swords, have been turned into implements of farming. But this person will slay the bad with the words of his mouth, with his very, the breath of his lips. And this seemingly leads to, this message from this one seemingly leads to an era of peace and knowledge. If, you, if we read this, and we're going to talk about the details of it in, in, uh, in and throughout this class and in the Zoom call after this class where we dialogue, those of you who haven't been with us before will see that towards the end of this teaching, there'll be a link in the chat. 
you need to join us because we're going to go even deeper in the Zoom call. But this particular era of peace that comes in, because of the message of this branch of this shoot from the root of Jesse, once this person's message goes forth, an era of uh, never before has the world seen peace as is described in this passage. Now, if the root of Jesse is indeed the rod shoot from the trunk or stem or stock, and also if this person is the branch from his roots, and I suggest to you that all three of these describe the same singular figure, then this particular shoot, branch, and root who is standing, according to the text, who is standing for an ensign, an ensign or a banner of the peoples, a banner of the peoples. This figure says stands or made, is standing for a banner of or for the peoples. Now, what does that mean? It says in the text that the nations, the people in this particular passage, are going to uh, seek this particular figure. It says the goyim will seek him, whatever that means. Additionally, same figure, additionally, in an attempt to assemble the outcast of Israel, in an attempt to gather the dispersed of Judah, it says that an ensign, same exact Hebrew word, is lifted to or for the nations. Now, the question that one should have, if within two verses we, we read that the root of Jesse is the ensign of the peoples, and then after a white space, it digs in and tells us more detail, and then it says that this ensign uh, for the, the people is lifted. Is there a connection between the two? Could be, maybe. We're just asking questions here. We want the text to speak to us. We want to read the text and allow the text to interpret the text. Why look somewhere else for an understanding if we see within the same text, the same words, the same phrases? Let's at least play these options out. The assembly and gathering of Israel and Judah, the outcast and the dispersed, it says, is a second time. Is a second time. It's a second reach. It is a second attempt to bring back the outcast and the dispersed of Israel and Judah. The question that obviously should come to mind when we read this is, oh yeah, when was the first? So if there's a second time, there's a first time. So somehow there are two times in which the process whereby the outcast and the dispersed are brought back. Wow. Now, what, if anything, 
can we determine from this text, isolated in and of itself? How much do we have to depend on uh, the language outside of this particular text and perhaps in the rest of the book of Isaiah? And then perhaps within the historical setting, should we then go beyond, not only do we have Isaiah, but remember, in the days of Isaiah, the life and times of Isaiah are told in several different books of the biblical text. Remember, Amos might play in because Amos and Isaiah have a little bit of overlap, at least at the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic career, because Amos is a prophet, we read, uh, during the days of Uzziah, which happens to be, he even mentions, within two years of the earthquake. Well, we happen to know that Isaiah also is a prophet during the days of Uzziah. So maybe we find something in the book of Amos that sheds light on Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 12, through 12, verse 6. Perhaps Hosea has something to say that might shed some light on this or other contemporary biblical personalities. When do we place the uh, text of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 12, verse 6? Now, I know some are more fundamental in their approach than others, but hear me out. Do we know for certain that Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 12, verse 6 is contemporary to Amos, the 8th century prophet, the 8th century BCE prophet. Now, if, if you read the book of Isaiah carefully, critically, uh, if you allow the text, let me say this, if you allow the text to say what it says without over-interpreting, without inserting your uh, ideas that are outside and foreign to the text, if you just read it for what it says and let it speak to you, it will tell you certain passages which are not contemporary to the 8th century BCE. And I'll give you a couple of examples right away. If you read in chapter 13 and 14 of Isaiah, that pushes us to the Babylonian period. And some might say, well, he's a prophet. He's looking forward to the Babylonian period. Well, uh, some, some would suggest that, but it seems more likely that these texts are collected in with other texts which do reflect the 8th century BCE. We've pointed out that chapters 40 through 66 seem to be beyond the 8th century BCE. In fact, the only historical personality that is mentioned in Isaiah 40 through 66 is a Persian ruler by the name of Koresh, Cyrus, and uh, God calls him in Isaiah 45 his anointed one. But that is another class. But if we read Isaiah 11.1 1 through 12.6, here's something that should stand out. There's no clue. There is no hint. There is certainly no clear language which, which puts that text, that prophetic text, in a context. There's no ruler that's mentioned. It doesn't say, and in the days of Hezekiah, or in the days of his son, Eliakim. We're going to talk about Eliakim, though. But again, immediately following 
chapter 11, verse 1 through 12, verse 6, what we do find is chapter 13 through 19 come to us in the form of what are called burdens or pronouncements against to the nations surrounding, right? So you get Babylon, you get some of these other nations. You can just thumb through, and it will tell you exactly to whom that particular prophecy is addressed. And some of those come from different periods as well. So, for instance, in chapter 13, um, verse 17 mentions the Medes and, and so forth. So you, you wonder, well, when did the Medes come in? Well, that's, that's at a later period. Now, from 20 on, from chapter 20 on, we get sort of an in and out of historical setting, flash forward, flashback, historical you know, in chapter 20, we have the story where Isaiah is told to uh, walk naked for three years, or we're told that Isaiah walks naked through the streets for three years. So from Isaiah chapter 20 through chapter 39, we get some that is early, some that is late. It's not even necessarily in order. Now, back to our text, though. If... Chapter 11, verse 1 through 12, 6 is or can be dated to Isaiah's time, the 8th century BCE. Then we have to ask, who is, who is the one on whom the Spirit of Jehovah rests? Is it a contemporary king? Now, before you say no, let's think about this. You might be right. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it looks forward to a, an eschatological messianic figure. Or maybe it's someone that Isaiah anticipated would be born in his day. Um, this particular passage, again, the shoot or the rod from the stem or stump of Jesse, the, the branch which will grow from his roots, the root of Jesse is often, quite often, in fact, most often associated with a descendant of David, the celebrated king, the son of Jesse. But is that what we're looking at here? Is this describing a righteous king of the Davidic dynasty. I want you to look with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 5. Isaiah 16 and verse 5. And a throne shall be established in loving kindness, and one shall sit thereon in truth. In the tent of David, judging and seeking justice and swift to do righteousness. Now, if this, Isaiah 16, 5, if it is speaking of a king that is coming, uh, a throne that is yet to be manifested, which is, as it puts it in Hesed, a throne will be established. It, the translation says loving kindness. Uh, this is the ASV. That's how I translate chesed. I think chesed is 
long-lasting love, loving kindness is an excellent way to translate it. So the throne that's established is in chesed. Now, in truth, it says, in emet, in the tent of David, and those of you who are listening to this live uh, or at this time of the year, we are presently in the festival of Sukkot. Now, this particular passage talks about the Ohel David, the tent of David. Uh, it's not really about a sukkah, but there is another passage about David that mentions sukkah. But I want to touch on this one, one other thing. In the tent of David, the idea seems to be most naturally understood that the writer, presumably Isaiah, is telling us that this throne that will be established, it has to do with the Davidic dynasty. It's in his tent. Like, it's not someone else's tent. It's in David's tent. Now, let's look at this other passage. I want you to go with me to the book of Amos. Amos is a contemporary we're going to go to Amos chapter 9, verse 11. And it says, And in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David, Sukkot David, the Sukkah of David. Now in Hebrew, when you hear Sukkot, uh, it, it, is, uh, it means the Sukkah of so in, in days to come, in that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, the sukkah that's fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up its ruins and build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, etc. Now, let, let, me, let me just touch on this. Here's the question that we should have. If we read Isaiah 16, 5, if we read... Amos chapter 9, 11, we have to ask ourselves, are these prophets who live and work and prophesy at the same time, are they looking beyond the option of the day? And they are they seeing a yet-to-be-manifest king of the line of David? That's the question. Is it, uh, is it, someone in their day. But remember, these two overlap. Now, I have a hard time imagining that, uh, that Amos and Isaiah, that Amos chapter 9, verse 11, and Isaiah 16, 5 are describing a contemporary king. We do have in their day, particularly where they overlap, we have Uziah, and then we don't know that Isaiah, that uh, Amos prophesies into the days of Yotam Ahaz Hezekiah because it simply says at the opening of Amos that he prophesied in a very tight window. But he does look forward to a restoration of the Davidic house or, or that prophecy in chapter 9 comes from a time when the Davidic house needs to be restored. Does that make sense? So if you read and it says, and at that time I will cause the tent of David to stand up and repair it, if you said that in the days where they still had Uzziah, Yotam, Achaz, Hezekiah, and got back to them, the kings would probably be like, what do you mean restore the, 
hello, I'm right here. I'm in the room. I hear you. So is it talking about someone, a king beyond from the time where kings reign, or is it put in at a time once the Davidic house is seemingly no more? Same question applies to Isaiah. Is this something which Isaiah, remember in Isaiah's day, the kingdom is not cut off. Now it is cut off at some point later. We're going to get into this in this new exciting series I'm talking about. But at this point, during the days of Isaiah, in fact, Hezekiah is a godly king. From everything we read, uh, Hezekiah is one of the greatest kings, perhaps only, perhaps, underline, perhaps only bettered in behavior by Josiah, who would come a hundred years later. So my question becomes, if I read a text that's written, such as Isaiah 11, 1 through 12, 6, is the writer, if the writer is in that time, is this written at a time, say, in the reign, and I'm just speculating here, say in the time of Uzziah, and it's looking forward to a righteous king? Well, we don't read a lot about Yotam. Ahaz is certainly not the righteous king that anyone would expect and say, yay, here he is. Uh, Hezekiah, maybe, maybe, all right? In fact, there's much to be said about how righteous uh, Hezekiah is. What about one of the children that are born to Isaiah? Could, could Isaiah 11, 1 through 12, 6 be talking about one of these other children, maybe even a child of Isaiah? We don't know, by the way. We don't know uh, about Isaiah's lineage. We don't know. Is he of the royal house? I mean, Jeremiah, we know he is a priest, the son of a priest of the priest of Anatot, but we don't get that with Isaiah. But we do know that Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16 and so forth, it talks about uh, how the, these are the children that the Lord has given me for signs importance in Israel and so forth. So could it be that Isaiah is talking about one of those children, whether they are his children or another child who is to be born in his time? We know, for instance, that Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, at least as far as a literal reading of the text, is not looking forward to a birth that's going to happen uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. In fact, he says in Isaiah 7, behold, the young maiden is pregnant, and she's going to bring forth a sign. And Ahaz, this is going to be a sign for you. Could this child that's born at that time, could it be? the child that we anticipate. I don't know. What about chapter 8? Again, Isaiah chapter 8 mentions the children that the Lord's given for signs and wonders. We have Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I don't think this is the child that's described, but could it be? What about chapter 9? What about chapter 9? I want you to go with me to Isaiah 9, verse 5 and 6. Isaiah 9, and I'm going to read... Chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. For unto us a child is born. 
Notice, I, I, I tell you where it says, Kieled Yulad Lanu, Benitan Lanu, because a child is born. This indicates that the speaker is saying, Hey, a kid's been born. In fact, when one of my grandsons was born from the hospital, I wrote, I posted on Facebook, Kieled Yulad Lanu, Benitan Lanu. It's the perfect announcement for the birth of a son. A child is born to us. This is my family saying this. A son is given to us. Now, here's where it doesn't apply to my grandson, right? Because then it goes on, and it says, um, <clears throat> the government shall be on his shoulder. God, I wouldn't wish that on any of my kids. But the government is going to be on his shoulder. This child that's born, the one that's born, right here. He's born right there. And his name... This is what trips people up. Would be called Pele Yoetz El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. People translate that variously. Is it wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? And I know others have come up with their accepted. You know, what happens here is people say, let me tell you what my theology is, and then I'll tell you how to translate that verse. That's what happens. People don't say, hey, forget my theology. What does the verse translate? And then I'll figure out what the theology of the verse is. You see, don't bring your theology in. Leave that out. You're talking about eisegesis. I'm talking about exegesis. Isa is when you put it in, uh, you put something in the text. I'm talking about let's, let's let the text give it to us. Tell us what it's saying. So, but here, Yoates, Yoates, the child, one of the things that is used to describe the child in Isaiah 9 is Yoates, he's a counselor. Counsel, is something to do with counsel. Now, what's interesting is that Isaiah 11, when it speaks of this, this one who has the spirit of God, <clears throat> says the spirit of Jehovah is upon him. You know what it says? The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of etzah. This is the same word as Yoates. So the question becomes, could the Isaiah 9 figure that's being described here, whose name, in other words, what he's going to accomplish, it, just like Maher Shalal Haspaz tells a story, quick to the booty, quick to the prey, this is coming down any day. See how I rhyme that. But this, this child, this particular child, the name Yoates plays in. It's a counsel, something about counsel. In Isaiah 11, the spirit of counsel is on this one. I'm just saying, could be. Also, in the air at the time, there is a story that is in 2 Kings 18, begins in 2 Kings 18, verse 17. We're not going to read it, and, and it goes for uh, more than a chapter, actually. The same story is covered in Isaiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 5. And here's what happens. The Assyrians are coming, and it's the days of Hezekiah. Assyrians are coming, so dispatched is a messenger boy. Uh, he's long dead. I can call him a boy. A messenger boy from the Assyrians. Probably pretty tough. He's surrounded by soldiers. He comes to the Judeans 
And he's, he's going to tell them, just surrender. It'd be so much easier if you just surrender. And one of the people who's dispatched to go talk to him is the king's boy. Uh, Hezekiah, his son. Hezekiah's a good king. He's a righteous king, right? He has a son named Eliakim. Eliakim is one of the ones who's dispatched to meet with this Assyrian who's, you know, telling the people to surrender. And he's saying things like, I'm paraphrasing, don't listen to that Hezekiah, you know. This would be like Seth being there right there, and they're saying, don't listen to your daddy, you know. I mean, this, but he's in a tough spot. But let me tell you, the people of the time, Think about what they're faced with. They've got Assyrians right there. They have hopes, high hopes for boy uh, for Eliakim. How do I know that? Because it's in the book of Isaiah. It is in the book of Isaiah. By the way, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in the context, in 2 Kings 18, the phrase counsel and might is used by the Assyrian. So here we've got the Assyrian presenting the counsel and might, and the prophetic image is, ah, 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 ah. there's a different counsel and might. The counsel and might you, Judeans, need to trust in is the one on whom the Spirit of Jehovah rests, because that is the counsel and might, not this Assyrian uh, that's at the gate. So, but how do I know? that in Isaiah's day, that there was high hopes for Eliakim. Go with me to Isaiah 22, verse 20. Isaiah 22 and verse 20. Now look, I've seen a lot of people use this and they really butcher it up because they don't put it in context. I mean, you can go to a Christian bookstore and buy you a t-shirt with some quotes off of this. They have nothing to do with Christianity. That's just if you wanted to do that. I wouldn't suggest you do it. Uh, verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that I'll call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I'll clothe him with your robe. Strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. He shall be for a throne of glory to his father's house, and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel from the cups even to all the flagons. In that day, saith Jehovah of hosts, shall the nail that was fastened in a sure place give way, and it shall be hewn down and fall, and the burden that is upon it shall be cut off, for Jehovah has spoken it. What is that talking about? Well, I can tell you part of it is pretty obvious. The government, the key of the house of David is passed to Eliakim. Now, it is interesting to me that in Isaiah 11, it talks about one who is expected 
to have the government upon his shoulder. That particular phrase is the precise phrase if Isaiah 11, 1 through 12, 6 is in the days of the 8th century BCE, the language seems to connect these two. It's worth considering as we work through. Isaiah 9, 5, the government's on his shoulder. Isaiah 22, 22, the kingdom, the key of the house of David is upon his shoulder. But listen, Hezekiah, as great as he was, <clears throat> And Eliakim, however great he turned out, did not achieve what Isaiah 11, 1 through 12, 6 described as this particular person achieving. Okay, so maybe, <clears throat> maybe 11, 1 through 12, 6 touches the language and the people and the personalities and the clues of the day but maybe it still looks forward, anticipating another one to come. You know, it could be that Isaiah and Amos look forward into the future and they see a hundred years into the future and they see the birth of Josiah. Could it be that they anticipated this figure who would accomplish all these things, that it was Josiah. Uh, well, let me tell you this. I can tell you in 1 Kings 13, in the days of Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, when he was in his uh, wicked uh, foolishness stage, a prophet comes forward. 1 Kings 13, you can read it on your own. And, and the, it is predicted that a righteous king of the house of David is coming, and he is named. The minimalists don't believe this really happened, but let's say it did. 1 Kings 13, it says there's a new king coming, and his name is uh, Josiah by name. That's a long, that's like 300 years in advance, you know? So I'm sure Jeroboam said, yeah, well, okay, I'm really worried about that. But... The idea is that it's mentioned that for could, could Isaiah, Isaiah 11 in particular, could it be looking forward uh, that close that, that maybe in 100 years? Maybe that's what he sees. The question is, it really comes down to, upon whom does the Spirit of Jehovah Rest. Now, interestingly enough, if we break down in Isaiah 11 and we go through the spirit of this, the spirit of that, they number seven. The spirit of Jehovah uh, is described with seven attributes or titles or names. Uh, very fascinating study. We're not going to go too deeply into that, but I will say if you, if you really want to study it, uh, from a later perspective, a later biblical writer, uh, look at Zechariah, Zechariah, I always say Zechariah, it's Zechariah, look at Zechariah chapter uh, 3 and 4, you have visions where he sees uh, the candelabra, the seven, and the seven, these are the seven eyes, and so forth, the spirit, and then in chapter 4, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, 
saith Jehovah. These seven, you see. So there's an idea that Isaiah 11 is often interpreted by Bible interpreters to associate Isaiah 11 with the seven spirits, if you will, or the seven manifestations of the spirit. The question, though, that I'm really after is, 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 is the figure upon whom the spirit of Jehovah rests in all its manifestations, is this figure a descendant of David according to the text? Remember, David is not mentioned. David is not mentioned. You go, yeah, I mean, he's not mentioned, but, but you have Jesse. Well, Jesse is his father, okay? So it would, be, it would be just as easy, it would seem, to say uh, David if it meant David. You know, the house of David, you, you can do a search for the word David. Isaiah knows how to use David. Isaiah knows David. Isaiah mentions David. Isaiah mentions David in Isaiah chapter 16, 5, which we've already talked about. There is a throne that will be established. But in this case, he, he mentions Jesse. Now, is, is the language pointing in the right direction to identify this figure as a descendant of David, or is it pointing somewhere else? I know what people think it's pointing to. I know that. This is a question. It's to make us think. It's to read the text and ask, is that the way you would say a descendant of a person, would you call that person as coming from the root or the trunk of their father, okay? I think there's an easier way to say that. Now, our coming shoot branch is from the stump of Jesse, the stock of Jesse, called the root of Jesse. Now, if we go through these seven that are mentioned, uh, you know, quickly, I'm not going to break into each of these, but I think it is worth a study. Spirit of wisdom, we, we get this in quite a few places, actually, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Ruach, Chokhmah, uh, Chokhmah is, is what is placed on Joshua. Remember Joshua, it says that he, you know, he takes over after Moses' death in chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 34, 9 mentions that he has the spirit of wisdom. Now, if you take the spirit of uh, wisdom and understanding and put those together, sometimes you'll even have the, the word da'at, which is knowledge. So wisdom uh bina is understanding and and if uh, if you've ever heard of habad kabad is based off of the three words khokhma bina and daat uh, wisdom understanding and knowledge it's based on this idea but if you look for wisdom and understanding here are a few verses for your notes i'm not going to go to them but write these down exodus chapter 36 verse 1 Deuteronomy 1, verse 13. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6. And 1 Kings 3, verse 12. Just a couple of examples for you. It talks about the fear of Jehovah. We talk about this figure we're talking about here. 
talks about the fear of Jehovah. The fear of Jehovah, that phrase occurs 37 times in the Hebrew Bible, 37 times. And these 37 times include such passages that we know, many of us learned this probably as a child, that uh, the beginning of wisdom, the fear of Jehovah is the beginning of wisdom, right? So this is the begin. this figure has and relies on the fear of Jehovah. Justice and righteousness play into the characteristics in word and deed, justice and righteousness characterize the time of uh, this figure when the Spirit rests upon them. In fact, remember, justice and righteousness occur in Isaiah 16.5. So then that opens that question up. Is Isaiah 16.5 another description of the same figure we read about in Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 12, verse 6? Or is it a different figure? You might immediately say, no, it's the same. Because we have a tendency to conflate every passage that we call messianic. We, we put it all on one figure. Yeah, is, you go, is he a judge? Yes, he's a judge. Is he a priest? He sure is a priest. Is he a king? He's a king. Is he a king and a priest and a king and a priest and a prophet and a yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and yes? Same guy, same one, just one. That's right. And it is, and then people often come up with who that is. It's not always been the case, and it may not be what the Bible suggests. Do we have evidence that there is more than one of these figures? Is this study of messianic identity or messianic figures, is, could it maybe be a little more complex than the sheet in the back of our study Bible? Could it be? Maybe. Have the people who put those sheets together, and I'm not just minim, uh, making fun of that, but ha could it be that perhaps some of these people didn't really study the context in which these verses are written. By the way, I'm going to answer that for you. Yes, that's true. They didn't. Isaiah 11 depicts a rod, a shoot from the stump or stock of Jesse. A branch from his roots. Whose roots? Jesse's roots. Jesse's roots... Hmm. Verse 10 calls this figure the root of Jesse, not the fruit. Not the fruit. Now you might say, well, you're reading too much into it. Maybe. By the time of the end of the kingdom of Judah, we start to see another idea presented. And this, this is one of the things I will develop very clearly over the process or, the, or this, uh, uh, this series that we're going to be talking about these kind of things. Something changes. Perhaps, for good reason, perhaps an idea develops 
because of witnessing failure after failure after failure after failure. Perhaps the people of the day said, you, you said, hey, we, we have another descendant of David coming. I, I could imagine that on the street people would begin to say, please God, no. Please God, no. Not another. Yeah, but this one, this one's going to be, this one is going to be, the, look, you, you said that, and you said that, and I've seen it, and I've seen it, and it is not good. By the time we get to Jeremiah's day, the kings of the lines of David are whacking prophets with swords. They've killed the prophets of God. So do we want another one? He might say, well, we don't want another bad one. We want another good. Well, let's just keep hoping because over the history, how many good ones did we see? This is not even considering the fact that God never wanted a human monarch in the first place. But let's say he agrees to it, puts some stipulations in place, and they bring them about. But every time it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. So what happens is I believe that some people, prophets in particular, begin to either maybe hear from God or hope that it's not a descendant of David, but David himself. Because that would be, you know, that would be okay, right? Look at Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 9. Now, I want you to know, you already probably do, but in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 9, what we're talking about is uh, this is at the end. The kingdom, like remember, the, in Jeremiah's day, the last king of Judah, his sons are killed in front of him and his eyeballs are poked out. He's taken captive to Babylon. So does Jeremiah, is it likely that Jeremiah is going to say, in days to come, a descendant of David, the people would be like, please, Jeremiah, please, not again. Here's what it says. They shall serve Jehovah their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. He's saying here, and you might say, yeah, but I know a verse where Jeremiah talks about a Davidic descendant, right? And I do too. I know those verses. We're going to talk about those verses. But at some point, Jeremiah sees it's, it's not a descendant of David. I'm going to literally raise up David. But it's not just Jeremiah who sees this. There's another person who sees it late. Notice these don't happen early. They happen late. Perhaps they happen when the tree is whacked down. Because we're going to read in another class, we're going to read that the people say, hey, what happened to that promise to David? What about there'll always be a descendant of David? What, what happened to that? Well, they, they said, well, look, look, hang on. God's going to raise up David himself. And then people go, okay, I'll buy that. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34. <clears throat> Ezekiel 34 
beginning in verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Jehovah, will be their God. And my servant David, prince among them, I, Jehovah, have spoken it. And you know what a lot of study Bibles or a lot of theologians will do? They'll say, this is the Messiah. Is it? I mean, is it somebody other than David? Because they think, some people say, this means the son of David, another David. Not really David, it's another David. Well, does the Bible not know how to say a David has a son? I think it does. Now, let's look at Ezekiel 37. By the way, remember, these are late. Ezekiel 37 uh, verse 24, <clears throat> and my servant David, Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in mine ordinances uh, and observe my statutes and do them, you see. So this is, uh, and look, 25, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers dwelt. They shall dwell therein, they and their children, their children's children forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Interesting. Now, could it be that these prophets looked forward <clears throat> to, in many passages, we do seem to look forward to a king of the line of David, a descendant of David, the Davidic dynasty. But we have to ask ourselves, at the end, at the end, when the prophets looked forward, a couple of different things manifested before their eyes. To some, in some prophecies, they saw David himself, not a son of David, David himself. Hosea 3, 5 is another example, but we're going to go there later. But some seem to see an ideal Davidic king. I'm going to try it again. Remember, Jeconiah is carried away and his seed, his line is cut off. I mean, it's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. If you look at, if you said, hey, show me a vision of the monarchy, you know what you'd see? A tree whacked off, just chopped down. The question, what Isaiah sees Isaiah sees in 11, 1 through 12, 6, he sees, I, I see a sprout. I see a rod. It's, it's coming from the root, the trunk, the stump, the failed tree. And someone would say, of David? Hold on. Of Jesse. Now, could it be the same thing? Does it mean the same thing? You wrestle with this. You look at these texts. Let's put our heads and hearts into this 
and see what the text of the Hebrew Bible say. Who are we looking for? Who are we looking for? Is it David? Is it a descendant of David? Is it another? I mean, if we go with texts from the Pentateuch, it uh, does in, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 24, does it predict that a Messiah from Joseph? And by the way, is the word Messiah even used? Where is the word Messiah? Where do we get this idea? Over and over and over I hear people say, and I was part of this at one time, uh, we have to look at the messianic expectations in the biblical period. No, we don't. No, we don't. You know why? Because they were wrong. They were far-fetched. There are We have messianic ideas in all sorts of uh, period pieces. We have messianic ideas in the Talmud. Read, you can pick what you want. Is the Messiah going to be from the dead? Is he going to be from the living? Is it going to be this person? Is it going to be this person? Hillel says there's not going to be a Messiah because everything that was messianic, I'm paraphrasing, uh, everything, every prophecy about the Messiah was fulfilled by, guess who? Hezekiah. That's what Hillel said. Now, we have other people. We had Akiva who named uh, Bar Kokhba the Messiah. Why did he do that? And what, what is Bar Kokhba? What is that Bar Kosaba? What does that even mean? Who, who said we're looking for a Messiah? And whose son will he be? Is he going to be the son of David? If so, is Psalm 110 a messianic psalm? Let me do air quotes. Messianic psalm. And does David call this figure Lord? David calls him Lord? Beginning next week, a survey of the text of the Tanakh considered messianic begins. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Nahum, Michael. What do all these books say? What are we looking for? Is it David? Is it a son of David? Is it another? But for now, if you're with me right now, watching live, if you're watching me right now, join me in the Zoom. Uh, you know what? I have one more thing that I forgot. You, you get a bonus. I'm going to put three texts. Side by side, I'm going to throw a curveball. Look how quick that was. I forgot that Seth came up with a way to present this. Whenever we study these prophetic texts, what we have to be able to do is to look at side by side various things like if you look at Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, and you compare that with Isaiah 65, verse 25, notice the bolded text. What you see is we have similar language. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people will say, 
Well, uh, and I even say to a certain degree that the text in 40 through 66 seemed to be from the hand of another writer. But if you look at these particular texts, these are examples where the language is similar. Some would propose that this indicates the same hand. Could very well be. But both Isaiah 11 depict this age. Some would call it utopian. It's this, it's this return to Eden, basically. Animals of prey eating, like it says, the lion will eat straw like an ox. Now, one thing that, that comes from this, whoever this figure is, when this person brings in the era of peace, with it also is manifested the knowledge of God, which is why we have Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. May that be in our day. May we live to see such times. And until it's manifested, could we not begin to work on our little piece of it? I think we could. Now, if you're with me live, join me in the Zoom. Shabbat Shalom, Chag Hasukot Sameach.